0: Welcome to Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, recorded from home and with the help of John Milkey from Blast Podcasts. How does one even approach the subject of mindfulness? Where does one start? Is there actually a beginning, middle, and end? Is everyone's path the same? Are our experiences or outcomes supposed to be similar? And how does one really quiet the mind? I mean, really, it's always thinking, it's always working. If I'm breathing, the mind is working. Isn't that right? And what exactly is the difference when people talk about mindfulness or meditation, mindfulness meditation, and all the other forms of meditation that we're hearing about? So before I get ahead of myself, I really want you today to be open-minded and cognizant of what you will learn and how you can apply it to your own life. As many of you know, I credit meditation as the game changer for me. I started it about a year ago, and I'm beyond grateful that I stuck with it. We are going through unprecedented time that impacting our life, our health, our freedoms, work, finances, and it's also a profound time of uncertainty, collective fear, and anxiety. So I really hope that you will embark on this journey with us today. Joining us is Jennifer Innes, the founder of Ottawa Meditation and Wellness. Jennifer is a UMass and UCSD trained mindfulness, mindfulness based stress reduction, and mindfulness self compassion trained teacher. Jennifer's story and her own path to this practice and profession is amazing in itself. And I can't wait to share that with you. Plus, as soon as I tell you the fact that she's actually a former spy, I think that's <laughs> going to grab your attention as well. So, uh, Jen, it is so great to have you joining us. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Leanne. It's great to be here.
0: I'm excited for our chat. Let me ask, like, have you meditated already today?
1: I have a couple of times actually, yeah. A-, a couple of times? Yeah, so I did a longer one early in the morning and just a short one before I got on board here. How about you?
0: Um, no, I actually haven't. I, I saved mine for the end of the day. It's funny. Like uh, for me, the morning is kind of get going and I know I should practice, you know, the gratitude and sitting and reflecting, but my mornings, I find I just, I need to kind of get going. And I find Mm -hmm. it's at night when I like to, to bring myself back down. And so I always, um, I always do it at night when the kids are taking a shower or a bath or kind of getting ready for bed. I kind of, Put myself mm-hmm. out and sit down for and I probably go for about a half hour. And okay. that's my that's my downtime. But I realize okay. it's
1: different for everyone, right? It is absolutely you've got to do what works for you. And I think the key thing is is the commitment. And it's uh, with that commitment that we start to develop the, the benefits of the practice. Well, when you say it's the
0: commitment, this is something I think that for a lot of people, I think it throws them off because they don't want to be committed that long before they actually see something That's going to benefit them, right? Because I I find people are like, I don't have the time to invest in learning Mm -hmm. or figuring out how to
1: do it to be able to get the benefits from it. Do you hear that often? Absolutely. And so it's not a quick fix. It is a process of of, uh, really committing and sticking with the practice. Uh, But those who do stick with it certainly do begin to experience those benefits. And the beautiful thing about this practice is there's no end to it. And so it can you talk about a beginning, middle, and end to it? You can really do this forever and continue to deepen in the practice. And I like what John Cabot zinn says. He says that the practice teaches you what you need to know. And so it can really be quite individual for each person in terms of what they're learning in this particular practice. Now, I'm not sure what practice you engage in, but certainly mindfulness meditation is a particular kind of meditation. So Some of the benefits that we might experience with this kind of practice will differ than what you might experience, for example, in transcendental meditation or a mantra based practice. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about these.
0: Well, absolutely, because, I, Jennifer, I was going to get to all of that, trust <laughs> me, because trust me, my, my list is, is pretty big, and I do want to be able to break that down, because I think a lot of people are are getting these apps, you know, you've got these Calm and this Headspace, and so you have people talking through, you know, you have people that are talking you through it, or if you go to YouTube, you'll have different music, or ums, or, people talking about finding yourself in space. And I think for those that um, are open to the concept and want to be able to be and live in this, you know, in this experience, a lot of us don't really know what it is that we're actually doing when we sit down and do, I don't know, like a YouTube video or if Mm -hmm. we do an app or if we just sit in silence. And I think people really do need to understand the difference and what those really apply to. So yeah, let's let's hit on that. But then I'm going to force you, as I had intended, to go back to the beginning, because I really want to get to your story as well. But really briefly, if you can, so people know what we're going to be getting into, break down what, how you consider the difference between meditation, mindfulness, and the other one, and
1: mindfulness meditation. Yeah, and so basically, meditation is just the umbrella term for the various practices that are out there, and mindfulness meditation is just one grouping of practices. So transcendental mantra are other types. So we use the term just like we would use the term fitness to um, to talk about a variety of diff- different physical activities. And so in mindfulness meditation, there's also a number of different practices and different you know traditions and lineages. But basically, um, mindfulness itself, there's not one authoritative definition of mindfulness because mindfulness is actually preconceptual. It's something that we can all experience, but we actually need to experience it to understand it fully. But that said, you know, there are a number of different definitions out there. And the one I like to use is John Kabat-Zinn's because it tends to be uh, cited most frequently. And so really what mindfulness is, is paying attention on purpose, in the present moment without judgment. And so there's really three aspects to what mindfulness is. There's the present moment aspect of it. So we're in the present moment, but that's not enough. And I like that one of uh, my teachers makes the comparison to uh, a black lab running around in a dog park, very present, but not mindful. So human beings have the capacity for observing their own mind. So this meta um, awareness capacity, metacognitive capacity that dogs don't have. And so that's the second aspect of it. And the third aspect of it is really important, and it's, it has to do with how we're relating to our experience. And so are we relating to it with some kind of aversion? So the idea is we want to be relating to our experience without judgment without that overlay of thought and judgment. And so mindfulness meditation is actually the practice of cultivating this quality of mindfulness that in doing so, we it becomes more readily available to us. And so when it becomes ready, readily available, we can actually benefit and tap into its many benefits. And there are so many benefits. I don't want to overstate the benefits, but... Uh, And there's certainly a lot of research being done right now, and again, I don't want to go too much into that, but just to give you sort of an idea, I think that today there are 8,000 research papers out there, half of which have been produced in the last six or so years, touching just about every imaginable health-related issue and the effects of mindfulness or meditation in these particular areas, And so the the big three benefits really, where there's a consistent and strong uh, body of evidence is in the area of depression, anxiety, and chronic pain. And of course, there are other benefits like attention, the ability to sustain the attention for longer and cognitive flexibility. And there's some amazing brain changes, including increased gray matter and cortical density in certain key regions of the brain. Um, I'm just trying just in terms of our ability to meet stress with more ease, both chronic stress, which is long term stress and acute stress, just to name a few. And I think some of the obvious ones that I found really early on in my practice is that when you're spending maybe you start with a 20 minute practice or you're starting with 30 and you're spending 30 minutes turning the attention inward inevitably you're going to increase your own self-awareness and through that process your own clarity about what's important to you what are some of the areas that you know we want to improve uh, and in our lives just in terms of you know whatever it is we're doing but also as human beings so I feel that this practice for those who who stick with it it does take not only a commitment but a certain interest and um in, in one's own experience and honesty because at the end of the day we're going to bump up or we're going to bump into things that we don't necessarily like that we see we're all human beings we've done things that you know maybe we're not proud of or are you know aren't things that we like about ourselves and so it really does require this honesty but also this gentle non-judgmental attitude when we're exploring um, our inner life. So the mind, body and heart, as we delve in. And so I think that's really important to remember. Yeah. You know, people,
0: you know, you talk about the studies and all of the things that it's able to do, you know, for our brains, and you, you listed a couple of different things. But at the end of the day, People are looking to find more joy, <laughs> be more yeah. mindful, be more present. Yeah. Like some, for some people, they just want to be living in a bit of more of the present moment to be able to look and, and and appreciate the things around them or their kids or taking a second to step back and realize life is life is moving so fast. Like, how do I be able to almost sometimes slow things down?
1: Mm-hmm. And I think you know you're finding something really interesting. And I Dan Harris wrote the book Ten Percent Happier. Love that book. <laughs> Yeah, and I think he just, I recently heard that he just pulled that number out of a hat, really. The 10% isn't based in science necessarily. But certainly, I think where the happiness comes in is, is really learning to access the present moment more often. I mean, really, that is where happiness lies. And, you know, you talked about mind wandering or just having a busy mind at the beginning of the podcast. And that's the biggest complaint that people have. And often a misconception of mindfulness meditation practice is that we're supposed to be blanking the mind and that's not at all the case. In fact, we're learning to observe our own thoughts and patterns and and where we get stuck in these mental ruts. And another really interesting study is that Harvard University found that 46.9% of the time our mind is wandering and that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. What I love about this study is that the predictor of happiness didn't have to do with what you were doing, but whether you were engaged doing it. So in other words, if you were having a piece of chocolate cake, but weren't really paying attention or savoring it, you weren't really enjoying it. And isn't that true? I mean, often, and I'm finding during this pandemic even, that you know life is shrinking in many ways, and I'm just finding myself where, you know, where there's gratitude just naturally arising more often, And I think that it has to do with, I'm not sure what it has to do with actually exactly, but this is where, again, you talked about gratitude practice. For me, I feel that this is really where happiness also lies, is, is in really appreciating those moments where we feel grateful for what we have. And so that unhappy mind is a wandering mind is when we get stuck in past and future And we start thinking about problems or looking for problems. And usually that story of past and future looking for problems tends to revolve around the story of me. And so, again, these are some of the um, things we are discovering in the brain. So the default mode network of the brain is uh, an area of the brain that actually becomes quite highly active when the mind is at rest. So when the mind doesn't have a particular task to engage in, we actually become quite highly active in terms of thinking about past, future, looking for problems and thinking about our own our own problems essentially. And so they find that meditators actually the default mode network quiets down not only during meditation but outside of meditation. So again, this practice of mindfulness can offer some freedom from that part of our existence, which is almost 50% of the time, this might being, being lost in thought. And we're like walking heads a lot of the time, completely disconnected from our body. And so these practices teach us to bring the attention inward into the body, to connect with what's going on in the body. And that is the gateway to the present moment. It's in the body because the body can be here anywhere. Sorry, the body is always present. Thoughts can be anywhere, anytime. And so this practice, again, of bringing the attention inward is is part of it.
0: I I think what's interesting is just if you have the ability to recognize that you're in the monkey brain. Yes. Like, I, I found for me the starting point was just recognizing that I was constantly thinking past or future. And, you know, I couldn't control. It was like my thoughts were getting ahead of me. And it was then when I kind of was like, how do I tame this like and that was for me was the introduction it was because because I actually one day just became very aware that Mm -hmm. I had that moving brain and I think for a lot of people that's almost the trigger that's even to recognize that that Mm -hmm. that's what's happening is a step
1: forward in itself
0: that awareness
1: absolutely and it usually is the first insight that people bump into when they start a A meditation practice is just how crazy our minds really are. They're like an out-of-control thought generator a lot of the time. And so that's a huge insight. And what's beautiful about it is that we can train the attention to be more present, less reactive, and also to begin to recognize our own patterns of thinking. And this is where we can get into mental ruts with, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety or whatever else is often... You know, our own thoughts create a lot of these problems, not all. I mean, obviously, thinking is an important part of our existence, but it, it, it can get in, in the way and cause problems. The one thing that you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago was that most people
0: have the the thought that we're supposed to get the the mind to just clear, to, mm-hmm. to, be, to be still,
1: and, yeah.
0: which seems like like an impossible task, but what did you mean by it? it's? That's not necessarily that's that's not what it is that we're mm-hmm. looking to do to have stillness. That's not how it works.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where there is confusion between the various practices because I know that in certain yogic practices, that is the goal is to clear the mind, and so mantra based meditations will tend to have well, whether they have that effect or not, I'm not entirely sure, but that is the goal. But in in mindfulness, what we're actually learning to do is to see really clearly what's actually going on so to see clearly reality and and so to see clearly reality we need to attend to whatever is present in a given moment and that may not be something pleasant it could be a lot of restlessness it it could be a lot of thinking and so we want to be aware of what's actually happening but we also don't want to get lost in it and so the practice is coming back to whatever anchor that we're working with so if often we begin with the breath awareness practice, but, you know, the breath for some people is not a neutral place, but let's just say we begin with the breath awareness practice. The mind would wander off and we just continually bring it back to this feeling of the breath as it moves in and through the body. And it doesn't matter how many times we need to do that. It may be a hundred times in a practice. The key thing again is not to judge ourselves for it. And so, this is the nature of mind, this is how minds work, but it can be trained, and then over time, the mind does begin to settle. And, you know, whether it's entirely blank, I mean, some people can achieve that, but it's just simply, it's, it's not the goal in this practice. I, and I think to be
0: forgiving, especially people, if they are practicing mindfulness, so you talk about having that anchor, which, which for many beginners, right, it does, it starts with the breast, just, you know, the focus on breathing yeah. in and, and and breathing out. And you'd be sitting there and you're kind of trying to count the breathe in, you know, or you you count yeah. and then you realize that you're thinking about I should have put this on the grocery list. And then this, you know, you really you start to say, oh, I'm not thinking anymore about just breathing. And so that's what you're referring to, to coming back to the anchor is that you recognize the thoughts have left and then you Mm -hmm. just come back. And that's what you're saying that could happen a hundred times in a meditation practice, but it's the the training of the coming back to the anchor is where you talk about the practice, right? That's the practice of bringing it back.
1: That exactly. And every time you do is a moment of mindfulness. And so when you just simply notice where your mind went off to, you might just, you know, say a gentle note, planning, remembering, or thinking, hearing, and then bring the attention back. And it's when we get lost in the thought, which we often do, but wake up. So when we wake up, there's the moment of mindfulness, then we bring the attention back. And so that's the discipline of bringing the attention back. And so there is a huge attentional training component of this practice as well, which is really important, particularly in our day and age, where we're constantly you know, bombarded with information, our phones are going off and notifications. So the attentional training has a a huge benefit. And I would even argue is one of the most important things we can do for ourselves, because at the end of the day, a scattered mind has no power, it's difficult to really be in charge of our lives. And we, you know, if we feel like we're chickens running around with our head cut off, um, you know, or we end up at the end of the day, wondering what we accomplished, because we were pulled here, there. And, everywhere. And so this ability to maintain attention has huge benefits.
0: So I I want people to understand that
1: it's not that you get really good, like when people
0: talk about the benefits of this, it's not that you get really good when you're sitting in a meditation of coming back to your anchor. It's how it applies when you're not in a meditation and how it applies to how you cope and deal with your everyday life—that's where you see the benefits, right? It's—it's it's not about being a really good meditator, or—and I, I think people need to understand that part.
1: Yeah, and the way I like to explain it, and I, I'm not sure where I—who I heard it from, but it's like a—it's like being in a laboratory. So the sitting practice, if you're doing a sitting practice, is the laboratory, and so you're learning things about yourself in that space because it's you know, fairly calm. You're staying put. And so there are insights or experiences, or not experiences, but understandings that you'll have during that practice that you can take those learnings and apply them in your day-to-day life, exactly what you just said. And it's interesting, you remind me of a participant in one of my workshops at one point. He was asking me, what's the point in going on a silent retreat if you're just going to end up coming back and you know being thrown into the busyness of your daily life? Isn't it kind of a waste of time? Again, no, because it's it's a training where It's uh, think of it as being a scientist in your own life, investigating it, discovering things, learnings and then applying them. Okay. So you brought it up. So I'm going to take, I'm going
0: to go like, let's just press pause for a second because you've just brought up the silent retreat. So it was funny because I was, as I was reading through things and looking through the work that you've done, I was under the impression that you really came into this practice kind of in your like early forties of this was something that was introduced and this was a shift you made. But in a conversation that we had, cuz you went on a cuz we're going to get to the fact that you went on a 12-day silent retreat but this was actually something that you experienced as a child so meditation or this mindfulness was something you were yeah. actually introduced to very young before you came back to it in your 40s
1: right. well i wouldn't say i actually i didn't have a practice but i had a father who's basically been practicing for i don't know maybe 40 years now and so i was always you know he spoke about it but I didn't actually have a particular, you know, a practice. I did do yoga for about 20 years, but it wasn't until um, I arrived at a certain point in my life where I felt just really overwhelmed. And um, I remember thinking to myself that from the outside, looking in my life looked perfect, but on the inside things weren't feeling so perfect. And so I decided it was time to do something about it. And I had the name of a meditation teacher in my phone that had been sitting there for five years that someone had given me when I was at the, you know, the green door. And uh, I decided to give her a call. And so I just had one-on-one sessions with her for four sessions. And she gave me a recording. It was a 20-minute recording. Is how I began. And I just committed wholeheartedly. I did it every single day. I don't know how many months I listened to her particular practice. And I just began to experience benefits, and it just grew from there. And today I practice maybe an hour a day, sometimes more. And on those rare days where I can't practice, I really feel it. And let me tell you, so do my, my kids. Um so they're they're big supporters of this uh of this practice. And so here I am, and uh I, I decided as well that I wanted to learn more, and so I embarked on the teacher training and uh and here I am sharing it with others, teaching it.
0: Okay. You did in, uh, over the course of time, you did go on a 12 day.
1: It was actually a 19 day. So oh my it was, God. yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I thought 12 was pressing it. Okay. Yeah. 19, 19 days.
1: Yeah, it was 19 days. But, you know, I have to let you know, like for some people, you know, some people do three month retreats or longer, you know, so it's, there's a whole retreat, uh, world out there, I guess you could say, and the retreats that I'm familiar with are the Vipassana or insight meditation retreats, and not the Goenka ones. I haven't done one of those. But um, usually, they are three, five, seven day long retreats or longer. So it could be a month long, three months. And again, some people do it for a year or more, if you can believe it. No, and, no yeah, wh- okay,
0: what, what, what's the point? Like you know, and and what's the difference between going silent for two days or five days or seven or nineteen, like you did? Like, what are you embarking on, and what is it that you need to mm-hmm. to, to say? I need to go and do this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think really it's where it's where every each person is at on this path, and because it is a path of understanding um, about our own experience about the nature of things. So depending where people are, they're looking for different things. I mean, some people, again, come to this practice as a way to alleviate a little bit of stress in their life, there may be some general curiosity, other people are taking it to a, um, you know, a far deeper level where it's really their their life and their spiritual practice. And so and a lot of it depends on how much time you have as well. And it just so happened that that 19 day retreat, my kids were all at sleepaway camp for the month, so it really worked out well. Um, But certainly it's it's an amazing experience. And I remember after the first one I did, which was with Tara Brack, I, I finished, and I remember thinking to myself, everyone should do this at least once. You know, again, when you think about it, you're meditating for, I don't know, 12, 14 hours a day. And so what you're gonna come out of that experience with is going to be a lot. Because you're spending time with yourself, with your own experience, and it can be just incredibly enriching on so many levels, but hard too.
0: (laughs) Right. Like sometimes people have a hard time just sitting through a car ride, you know, without music playing and just silence. Like you think of what people are capable of, of being within their own thoughts. And I'm thinking for people who would have experienced trauma or difficult things to sit to sit with that in silence, mm-hmm. with nothing else but to have to to come to terms or to go through it or to re-experience it. like I'm, oh. like, like how mm-hmm. how does that when you're sitting through mm-hmm. I, sorry, I'm, it fascinates me because I can't understand being able to sit that long and have to experience
1: things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, maybe I should clarify because it's, uh, you know, there is a format and the ones that I've been on are with amazing teachers. And so the support is huge. And so it's not like you're left to your own devices with your mind, not knowing what to do. And so maybe I'll just briefly talk about the format. And so you, you know, you wake up between five and six, there's a movement mindful movement practice in the morning. And then basically you alternate between walking and sitting meditation for pretty much the entirety of the day. Um, 45 minute practices but at the beginning they'll set you up for the day so it will be a guided meditation and there's an opportunity uh, you know for often for Q&A after that first guided practice so you know what you're supposed to be doing um, during the day and so you're you're really working with those instructions and you feel supported as well because there is let's say on a week-long retreat you would meet at least once one-on-one with your teacher and then once in a group setting and sometimes more. So there's an opportunity to um, ask questions and just bring up whatever may be coming up for you or you can write a note at any time to your your teacher. So it's not like you're left hanging. And then at the end of the day, there's a Dharma talk. So a Dharma talk is just to talk about the teachings of the Buddha and it's not at all religious. It doesn't feel that way at all. It's just about the teachings and just just to be clear, uh, the teachings of the Buddha is really, it's not buying into anything. It's not a belief system. It's really, here are these instructions, go see for yourself, see how it works for you. So that's really um, how it works. And these Dharma talks are very helpful, actually, in terms of understanding the practice, understanding our own mind, understanding the struggles we're going through, the restlessness, the the mind that doesn't stop, the anxiety that's arising during practice or or full-on fear. And so, again, during these retreats, The teachers who lead them are highly experienced and so they know how to guide in terms of trauma as well. There's certain um, instructions that we do uh, suggest for people who have trauma and ways to, um, you know, get back into their uh, window of tolerance because what often happens or what can happen with people with trauma is that they can get outside of that zone, particularly when they're bringing the attention inward and so often, the suggestion is to have some kind of grounding, feeling the feet on the floor, feeling you know, the floor beneath your feet and, and whatnot, so to bring yourself back. And this is why the, the breath is not always a neutral place for everybody, so people with trauma don't always feel at ease bringing the attention to the breath. And also reason why we always give the option to keep the eyes open during a practice too. Hmm.
0: So yeah, Yeah. a lot of people will think, okay, it's all about deep breathing and your eyes are closed and you're sitting in a certain position, Uh, but that's, I think they need to understand that's not going to be the case. They could be sitting or lying or eyes open. So we all kind of tend to have our own judgment or thoughts about what we think it is. And that's not necessarily the case.
1: No, exactly. And it's a learning process. I think the key thing to understand is that you can't really do it you know, get it wrong. You know, I think a lot of people worry or they get, you know, am I doing it right? And if I'm not doing it right, they give up and they just move on to something else. And so I think it is really important to understand you can't really mess it up. You know, I think as as long as you're really... Okay, wait.
0: I'm thinking like day day five of a silent retreat and you just want to scream. That's, you know... That's like a, I, I give up. You know, some people don't last. I've read a, a number of books, right, from people who, like, went in with the best of intentions and after two, three, four, five days were just like I they, – mm-hmm. they couldn't last. So what happens when someone like you can make it through 19 mm-hmm. days and others
1: can't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so again, just to like to pick up on that point, if you're you have a teacher who who's well experienced, that actually is really amazing material to be working with. The fact that you feel that you cannot stay is a, an area to investigate. So how does that feel in your body? How are you in relationship to this experience? And so Again, we're not with mindfulness meditation, we're not trying to achieve any particular state, not even relaxation. It's really about becoming very clear on what's actually happening right now. And so with, if what is actually happening is that you feel like you're jumping out of your skin, the invitation would actually to become really curious about what that feels like. What thoughts are here? How does that feel in your body? What happens to that feeling? Does it go away? How long does it take to go away? Does additional thinking fuel the feeling even more? Or if you bring your attention into the body, into the breath, does it leave? Is there an impermanence to how you're feeling? Is it just ebbs and flows, this arising, lingering for a while and passing away, which is another insight that we inevitably do bump into is this truth of impermanence. And the difference between an insight and a cognitive or conceptual understanding is we can often say, oh, yeah, I get it, I get it, everything's always changing. But to experience it during a practice at that level is a different experience.
0: What did you gain from it? Was there a a point in there where you're just you know you had that what like I'm using like air quotes like an enlightenment
1: mm-hmm. you know is
0: there such thing as like this enlightenment or this you know yeah pot of gold or this ray of light at the, <laughs> end of the rainbow you know what is that
1: so I think it's it's again it's just a deep deepening understanding of all aspects of our experience right so getting to know our own mind getting to know our own emotions, how we are in relationship to them. Is it serving me? Is how I am in relationship to these emotions, this fear that I might have? um, You know, how is this holding me back? So it's really a process of insight. So we bump into these insights in different ways. It's never the same experience for everybody. And um, so it's just think of it more as a, a process of deepening our understanding And I I find it funny, like almost at the end of every retreat, the teachers will prepare us for going home. And they usually start that talk off with, so when you get home, everyone's going to ask you, friends and family are going to say, so what did you do for the last week? And everyone bursts out laughing. And the reason why is it's really, it's hard to explain uh, it doesn't look like much is going on, but there's so much going on under the hood. So, <laughs> I don't know if that was helpful at all. But uh, no, yes, there's a lot going on under the hood, and yeah.
0: we all have a lot going on under the hood.
1: Yes, exactly. It's being
0: brave enough to go figure out how to make it run smoothly. Yeah, you know, and I you, right. There's a lot of grease. There's a lot of buildup. <laughs> there's a lot of buildup yeah. under the hood.
1: Exactly. And so I think then the first step is the recognition of what's actually there to begin with. And I love how Joseph Campbell, who's an American philosopher, talks about the circle of awareness with a line running through the middle. So everything above the line is within our awareness and everything below the line is outside of our awareness. And so what happens often is we push down unpleasant things, unpleasant emotions that you were just talking about. And so mindfulness brings a lot of these things to the fore into our awareness, and it's only once it's in our awareness can we actually begin to apply a lot of these tools. Because really, mindfulness learning, uh, these practices are tools to support us when we're in the midst of difficulty, and often this difficulty, you know, can be around certain emotions, grief, loss, fear, anxiety. Um, you know, this pandemic, I'm sure, is is just bringing up so many different emotions for for everybody. And maybe I can just speak a little bit to my own experience with fear. It was an area that I um, I had an almost debilitating fear of public speaking. Well,
0: you're you doing know. a great job right now. So thank you for that. No,
1: thank you. No. So anyway, so a lot of fear with that. And so I don't know how I managed to get through most of my life avoiding it at all costs. But I did. And what I realized, so again, back to this circle of awareness, is that this fear that I had around speaking, even in a small group, actually, I was just pushing it down. I was resisting it. And I love the saying that what you resist persists, but what you feel you can heal. And so... I realized that this fear was not going away, avoiding it was not gonna help me and that it was really holding me back in my life and so I decided to do something about it. And I would say that mindfulness was really instrumental in allowing me to overcome it. And it's when I say overcome, I should say, Move beyond it because it's not like it goes away permanently. You know, you do have these moments of fear, but now I know how to be in relate in wise relationship with it. I'm not pushing it away. I'm not condemning myself. You know, why do I have this fear? This feels so yucky. I want to get rid of it. I know how to actually invite it in with this kind curiosity and stay to trust that it's okay to stay with this feeling.
0: Was there something that triggered it? Like, was there something
1: as a child that? that triggered the ability, the inability or that fear of speaking in public? I, I do think there was, and, and this is an interesting thing that you're raising because I find in my workshops, participants often go to the why and the why is important, but this, this is also why psychology and mindfulness work well together. Psychology asks about the why mindfulness is about the how. And so we wouldn't, so I, I think I do, you know, and I think it does relate to a school experience actually, but I, I wouldn't know for sure, but I, from the perspective of mindfulness, we wouldn't invite going into the story of why, not that it's not important, it's just a different approach, it's more about what is here right now, how am I in relationship to this fear Can I stay with this feeling? Can I trust it? Almost befriend it. So at one point I remember imagining the fear sitting beside me, putting my arm around it and saying, it's okay. You can be here right now. You know, you're part of me right now, and we're going to get through this together. And, you know, so this stuff really works. You know, it really works. It's about turning toward our experience, befriending it, and being curious about it. Can you repeat
0: the quote because I think if that would be something you almost have like pinned on a vision board that the so it's it persists if you re- let, could go through it again. Yeah,
1: so what you resist persists and what you feel you can heal. And there's an equation by Shinzen Yang and he says that pain times resistance equals suffering. So pain we cannot avoid, we all experience it. But we the resistance that we add we have some control over. When we add resistance, we actually create our own suffering. So we add that extra layer. And, you know, we can, again, as the practice deepens, we can start to see in our own experience what we're resisting and how that does actually create additional suffering. And you might just take pain or a little bit of tension in the body. So if you feel tension in the body and you're kind of resisting it and you're feeling all tense, you know, you're holding your body, it actually increases the tension to some degree. And if you're able to relax back and simply feel it, it can ease it a bit. So that's just a simple example around sensation in the body, but it works in the same way with emotions. Would it apply to like its emotions of anxiety, stress?
0: I mean, I know something that you had come through was just uh, emotional eating, or you know, yeah. coming about it. And I know, and I know that you had that experience, and that you're okay to share it. But can you share? Because it's great when you talk from experience, right? Mm-hmm. In areas. Mm-hmm. So how how was that effective, or how did you view emotional eating and bring it into the yeah. meditation?
1: Yeah, and so I mean. The thing about this practice is that it's not just like I, I it's it has real life application and but it's important to understand, again, not a quick fix. It's something that deepens over time. And so the more we practice, the more we're able to see subtle aspects of our experience. So what I mean by subtle is that we can pick up on certain thought patterns, certain emotions that we hadn't noticed that were there before. And so one way that mindfulness can help us too is to interrupt bad habits. So unhelpful habits. So I noticed at a particular time in my life where I was going through a, a difficult time, I just found that thoughts about food were popping into my mind all the time. And I was walking to the fridge and I found that I was engaging in eating when I wasn't hungry. I knew I wasn't hungry. And so I decided to make this my practice and to investigate what was actually going on And so the thoughts about food would even come up during my sitting practice. And I remember a very wise question from a wise teacher of mine who said, if you find that you have a lot of repetitive thinking, ask yourself, what's fueling this thinking? So what's fueling the thinking? And so when I asked myself that question, I was able to get underneath the thoughts, which were emotions, unpleasant emotions. And what was interesting about it, it wasn't one particular emotion, it was just a whole slew of subtle, unpleasant emotions like restlessness, boredom, there might have been a bit of, you know, anxiety there, uh, procrastination. And so the minute I felt that unpleasantness, I wanted to self-medicate with food, essentially. So there was the cycle of emotional eating. And so I don't know if you know the habit loop, but basically you have a cue, a behavior, and then a reward, and I just kept reinforcing it. So I'd have the thought about food, I'd have the impulse, so I'd feel the impulse in my body, wanting to get up, I'd get up, go to the fridge, have something to eat, got that little shot of dopamine, and there goes the cycle. And so what we, I don't know if, you know, what many of us don't realize is that we're reinforcing that habit and the neural pathways in the brain and so the more we do it, the more entrenched the habit becomes. And so mindfulness, again, brings a lot of this into the light of awareness so that we can begin to decondition those behaviors that are not serving us well. Again, we've got to see it first, and then we have to have the, you know, the tools and the training to know when to interrupt that pattern. And often we need to interrupt it when it's most strong, like during an impulse of wanting to eat. So being able to stay with that unpleasant impulse.
0: We are having probably a lot of impulses right now as we are isolated and at home. And as I mentioned right off the top of the podcast, uh, anxiety, uncertainty, you know, there's a, a plethora. I, we, could, we could like list 10 things right now that are, that are affecting us as a society too every single day. How can people begin this process of learning how to sit? Or Mm -hmm. saying to themselves, let's learn how to do this. How during this time can it be of its greatest benefit by starting to practice mindfulness?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a loaded question. And again, it's not a one size fits all approach. So it's really hard to advise. And because there's so many different things out there, I mean, it's also a really amazing time to tap into some of the opportunities that are out there with some world class teachers offering all of these online Uh, opportunities to sit with them and uh, so I would just say dive in and try it out and see if this is for you but I do think it's important to build some kind of habit around it and to stick with it because otherwise you know if we're not directing the attention we we can kind of get scattered with it and so um I would just encourage people to maybe explore, try different teachers, and I, I'm a bit biased, but I do find that the eight-week MBSR is a great place to start, because you not only have a group of people that you're sitting with, you have the teacher, there's the weekly you know, meeting with them, there's the home practice, and so the ability to develop the habit around it. Um, and just the, you know, the support of of the group. So that's where I would often invite people to start. But there's so many other programs out there, including apps. And I think some of these apps are great. I, I, you know, I don't know how people feel about them in terms of not having that one, you know, that contact. Um, but we're living in a different world now, anyways. So the contact is is quite different. A lot of these programs are going to have to be run online. I will be offering one uh, an MBSR, online in the fall if things don't go back to normal, which it doesn't look like they're going to be at this point.
0: There's definitely, I think, we're going to be adjusting to a very new normal for sure. And so I, I want to allow people, and I think let's let's try something right now because we still have a, we still have a couple minutes to go, but. For people to not say, am I doing it wrong? Uh Um, You know, how is this going to feel? Um, If it doesn't work within the first two times that they sit, like that's what drives me nuts. Is like, I finally will convince friends to give Mm -hmm. this a try like I get them to the point where they're like okay you know and I'm like just start with so for me I was always like start five minutes on the headspace app that's how I got my start right and so I have like this commitment for like two three days and they're with it and then Mm -hmm. you know on day five it's just like ah so why is it that people feel like they're they're doing it wrong or it's not working for me you know like Mm -hmm. it's like they took so much of a leap of faith by sitting for the first time and yet there's Mm -hmm. they give up on it so quickly
1: yeah, I think it it just, I mean, when I heard you say that, I think, what did you say, um, you know, I'm not doing it right. Or so I think part of it is just understanding or having a misunderstanding of what it is that they should be experiencing. So it sounds to me like people have um, an expectation of what they should be experiencing. And so what we often do at the beginning is to invite this beginner's mind and to really open ourselves up to, to whatever is happening. And so if you feel like you're practicing because you have a particular goal in mind or it's just not working for me, like, what does that mean to you? Like, that's what I heard you say. You said, this is not working for me. Well, what does that mean exactly? What is not working? You know, so I, you know, so if people are saying that, what is their expectation around it? And so I think if they understand what they're supposed to be doing and they stick with the instructional set and just stick with it for a certain period of time, and then just see how do they feel in their own experience is this benefiting me is it not and then take it from there but to open ourselves up to whatever we're going to get from the experience rather than imposing this is the way it should look like i should be able to blank my mind or i should feel relaxed during this practice or i should feel relaxed after the practice and i'm not and so i'm going to give up so that's we got to scrap all of that you know and so it's really bring this beginner's mind set, you know, maybe you do it for two weeks every day just to see what happens and then see for yourself. Is it, is it helping you? I mean, you said it yourself. You find that this has been a game changer. Um, I'm not sure what, what, you know, benefits that you've noticed in, in, in the first year. Well, I mean,
0: first off, I like you, I mean, it's, and I've been very lucky that I have the support of my family and because I think I'm a much better mother and wife and friend when I get my workout in and I get my meditation in. I'm physically and mentally fit. like helping my body. I feel like I need to f- do the exercise and I need to train my mind also. Mm-hmm. And when it's done – I am a much better, kinder, less bitchier person. Right. So yeah. just like you said, right? The kids can recognize when it hasn't been done. But yeah, so for me, I just I really have felt a massive shift over the last year. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think when I'm most upset with myself is, and this is where I think it's interesting when people say it's not working for me, is sometimes now when I lose my shit on the kids or something or something gets to me and I and I lash out. That's when I'm most upset with myself now because okay. I know that I should have taken the the second to to process and almost that I get yeah. mad that the meditation at that point didn't work. Didn't work. Oh. Does that make any sense? It's kind of like I knew better and there was that
1: reaction mm-hmm. that I hadn't
0: I haven't quite yet been able to. I didn't come back. I didn't I didn't have an anchor to come back to.
1: But that's amazing because you have you know the difference now. Right. You know the difference between reactivity and when you do lose it. So I think the key piece that you can bring into that is this non-judgment towards yourself when it isn't perfect really important not to judge ourselves, but the fact that you notice the difference, mm-hmm. and you I notice do. the benefit of the non-reaction, and it's, it's not a linear process. The learning is not linear, and, you know, sometimes we'll slip back, and sometimes, you know, so I think that's also important to bring into it. And I think too,
0: right, I started with five minutes, I now can do 30. And you know, I get upset when the timer goes off, or I'm supposed to open my eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I, I and, and you said, like, we all have something different, I actually feel a different energy, like I can feel a tingling through my my head and my temple, like I, I just yeah. feel like, almost like there's a rewiring of my brain as it's happening, right. And so Ooh. that's when i most, um, that's when I feel like a lightness when Mm. I am in in the meditation is that I feel like there's just like these tingling sensations going on in my brain then I just I tell myself that it's a gift that I'm giving to myself right the opportunity for it to kind of just ease itself off of the negative thought or the future thoughts or the monkey brain or everything else Mm -hmm. that you had that you had mentioned
1: Mm -hmm. amazing that's great yeah so you're yeah that's that's great and I think uh you know, and I, and again, I, I you know, and the, part of the reason I, I would recommend like an eight week is that I think people in the West, in particular, and I think the way my dad started is that he had an Asian teacher who didn't explain anything the why. Whereas I think that Westerners really want to understand why they're doing this and why is it important and what is it supposed to produce. And so if we do have some kind of that you know that understanding as well, of where are we headed with this? Then. I really do think that those teachings are very supportive to a practice. And so an eight-week program, you're going to get that. You know, you're we're going to talk about perceptions and, and thoughts and how they work and reactivity. Well, you know, usually in week four and five, we start to see that by week five, people are noticing that they're a lot less reactive in their life and that they're able to pause and respond rather than react. And when those light bulbs go off in the class, I'm telling you, it's just, it's amazing to see. In five weeks.
0: Okay. Can you do it in five minutes? Can you take us through for someone who hasn't <laughs> actually for someone who actually sure. hasn't like I'm like right on the timing here. If for those of you who are <laughs> finished your walk or you're, you know, maybe you've done you know, usually I would say you're, you know, commuting to work. A lot of people listened uh, when they were commuting. That's not happening right now. But or even like just three minutes of what it would sound like. Like what does what does the sensation of going through this practice sound like when you actually have a teacher with you?
1: Okay, I mean, I can do a three-minute three okay. practice, but just sure. so you know, I mean, this is very you know, basic. I'm just going to do a little <laughs> breath awareness practice. And so basically, you just want to find a posture that feels supportive. And since we're sitting on chairs, maybe we'll just guide from here. And so the feet can be uncrossed and flat on the floor. So you want to feel like you have a solid base. And the spine can be upright, but not rigid. So we want to be relaxed yet awake. So again, it's not about inducing relaxation. It's about being awake, yet relaxed. And so you can just allow the hands to rest comfortably in the lap, however that might be for you. And then the chin can just be slightly tucked. And once again, with the eyes, you can either leave them open or just cast downward two to three feet in front of you. And so, usually, when we begin a practice, we might just take a few deep breaths. Just to settle the body, just taking them at your own rhythm and pace. So, breathing in deeply, and then just letting go. One more in breath, and then exhaling, letting go. And then as you settle into the posture, you may notice a variety of sensations in the body. There may be sounds in the environment. Thoughts and emotions may be present. Just noticing what's here. And now deliberately directing your attention to your breathing, wherever it's most vividly felt in the body, and then allowing all other aspects of your experience to recede into the background. So allowing your breath to be in the foreground of your experience. Just feeling the breath as it's moving in and through the body. So we're not thinking about the breath, but feeling it directly. So breathing in and knowing that you're breathing in and breathing out and knowing that you're breathing out. And at some point you'll notice that the mind has wandered off the breath. Once again, this is not a problem. This is what minds do. So the invitation is to simply notice where the mind has gone off to without getting lost in the content or story, and then gently but firmly bringing the attention back to the next breath. Feeling the breath moving in and out of the body. I'm just doing this for the next few breaths until you hear the sound of the bell.
0: Mm. Okay, give me a second here. I need like a second to come out, so I mean, oh, that just felt actually really good. Um, for you that there was talking through it, but if you're getting into a longer one, the 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 space between when you're talking to us mm-hmm. becomes further and further apart. That there's not constantly a voice. That's
1: there. yeah, and and again, depending on where people are at in the practice, some people really like the guidance, and again with a longer practice I'm taking you through different aspects of your experience. That was just one aspect of it. And so, yeah, there, and you can guide in different ways where there'd be way more periods of silence or more talking for beginners, because they, I find that with beginners, they do tend to prefer a little more guidance. Um, so, but yes, and, and, and the more experienced you get, I, you know, you know, I, I find I like doing silent meditations. So just without any guidance, but from time to time, even now, um, I will put on a, a recording just because my mind is so much busier and I feel I just need that additional support. So there's no right or wrong, wrong way.
0: Okay. Let me, if you, I'm just going to put you through like a fireside, real fire, like I'm firing you off questions. If okay. you had three people that you would besides yourself, cause I'm going to put your links in and gonna, <laughs> okay. like, like, who were, who are, would be some of the three biggest people for you that you would sit and enjoy their meditations
1: or feel like it's along the lines that, that speak mm-hmm. to you? Well, I mean, I have my the teachers that I follow. And so they tend to be, you know, the teachers out of Spirit Rock Meditation Center and IMS, so the Insight Meditation Society in, in Bar, Massachusetts. So, you know, Joseph Goldstein is, is, is one of them and Tara Brach, who I love as well. And Um, You know, there's so many, I don't really want to single anyone out. I think the key thing is to settle on the kind of practice you want to do. And so the kind that I'm drawn to and the teachers I follow is insight meditation, which is Vipassana. And so uh, there are so many amazing teachers out there. So I, I do feel a little uncomfortable, sing, you know, singling any one particular teacher out. And, and some of them aren't, you know, some amazing teachers that aren't super well-known, but are amazing, you know, guiding. And dharmaseed.org has a lot of um, recordings of different um, meditations and Dharma talks. So it's also a great resource. My, my website has a resource page with links. And so okay. that would be one. And, uh, yeah. and what would be like the top book for you? The book that yeah opened up? Jeez, gosh, that's another tough one. It's hard to say Whitley. So I started off with John Cabot's book, uh, What is it? Wherever You Are Here. What is it? Uh, Wherever You Are. I can't even remember the title exactly, but that's where I started. There's so many books. I have, again, I have a link. Um, and I find that depending on where I'm at in, this process I'm drawn to different books I I also really enjoyed Rick Hansen's Resilient and really this practice is about resilience we're building resilience we're learning to sit in the middle of it all and so we're building these skills so I I really resonated a lot with that particular book but again it's it's really hard to just you know single one book out
0: I love that you do mention the resilience that's a big part of what it is that that this is right now right we are building up our resilience to what we are going through
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they, they do say there is a link between mindfulness and resilience. And resilience is really about, about we, we gain this skill by turning the attention inward. And it's about how we perceive stressors and how we react to them. And so through these practices, we're given the tools to be with these difficult experiences and meet them in different, more creative ways, I guess you could say. Mm. So it is a, yeah. It's, uh,
0: it's beautiful. I mean, like I've gone way over, uh, you know, as I'm looking at the time and stuff that we were chatting, I want yeah. people to know. So the, in our show notes, of course, I'm going to have your website, mm-hmm. but on that website, you were talking about, there's lots of resources and links and places mm-hmm. to go for more information.
1: Yeah, there's absolutely. So the questions that I, you've just asked me that I feel I, I totally did not answer well, or in terms uh, of books I've, and things like that. Um, and, and teachers, there are many different things on my website that would guide people in different directions. And I, I think the key message is that it's not a one size fits all approach. So it's really important to resonate with the teacher in the practice. And so I think that's more important is to listen to what feels right for each person. I think
0: just even for someone to think that this is something they're gonna try or be open minded to. We've we've kind of you you've won half the battle right there in just <laughs> being open minded to it. I never got to ask you about being the spy. Like I I'm I'm picturing um Jennifer Garner
1: and alias. Is that about right? <laughs> You know what, if I told you about my job, I'd have to kill you.
0: That's the perfect. That that is where we are going to wrap things up. I love it. I really do. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much yeah. um, for the time. As I mentioned, we will get all of those uh, in that information up in the show notes, so you have the uh, the resources and the links. And I just, I'm asking of you, right? This is the perfect time. You you can't use the excuse that you don't have time. That's probably the number one excuse people would say. I just don't have time to do this. So yeah. you do have time now,
1: right? Like absolutely yeah and I think if the people who say they don't have the time maybe are the ones who probably need it even more right because it just gives you a little bit of spaciousness into your day mm-hmm. and uh the other thing I just quickly say before we yep. sign off in terms of the no time is that I think the time you put into the practice you get back 10 times more in terms of your ability to focus and be productive and just you know all the other benefits that it brings so it's it's really a gift yeah.
0: that's perfect I'm going to end it right there. Jennifer, thank you so okay. much. And to everyone listening, thanks again for listening to yet another episode of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang. Thanks so much, Leanne.
1: I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.